vision and graft, a creative's career and mental well-being companion. Yo, welcome to another episode of Vision and Graft. I'm Richard William Preisner. I'm a freelance photographer and cinematographer based in the UK. You're listening to episode five, and my guest this week is sports reporter and presenter Caroline Demores. She also dabbles, as she puts it, in stand-up comedy too. There's some hilarious videos on her Instagram, so you should have a watch of those. The link is in the show notes at visiongraph.com. Caroline travels the world for her work, and I actually met her during a trip to Monaco where I was working as a camera operator and she was presenting. We also met Luis Figo on that job, which was a career highlight for me. I managed to get a photo of him, which Caroline took, and I was so starstruck at meeting a childhood footballing hero. I looked like a beetroot I went so red in the face, so I kept that photo to myself. Caroline has worked for BT Sport, ITV, Eurosport, Channel 4, Red Bull and BBC Sport. The list goes on. Watching her work was impressive as she's a great professional and she's also a good laugh too. Caroline was very generous in sharing her experiences with me and I could listen to her tell stories all day long. We chat about a range of topics surrounding life as a freelancer. We discuss networking and what it actually is and the need to focus on our strengths at times of adversity. We cover personal mental health awareness and what this can bring to us moving forward, including imposter syndrome and the impact this can have on putting ourselves out there. Then we go on to discuss others' comments on how we look, especially for those in front of the camera. We consider the impact that freelance life can have on our relationships, living a life with constant travel and pushing ourselves hard at work, and what all of this can do to our mental well-being. First of all though, Caroline begins with how she got into presenting and the benefits of diversifying as a freelancer. So, let's dive straight in. I trained as a dancer, um, so I was never even going to be a presenter. I mean, that, that I had done a presenting thing when I was younger, but again, I think it was more for the experience and it was like quite fun. Um, but I was, I was going to be a dancer. And I think what helped me was that in any industry, sometimes people get very tunnel vision and they just, and in the dance world, it was very much, you know, you live and die for the art and it was just about the dance. And, um, I got given or I was offered a role in a dance film and I did that. And then I, I went for a casting. I was just very open-minded. Um, I did, I did a casting and they needed someone who spoke Portuguese and I could speak Portuguese. So I did the casting and then I got the job and I think I thought it was acting when I first went there and then I moved to Budapest and I started working and I realized that it was presenting and I didn't know anything about it. They essentially were going to train me, but they just needed someone who could speak the language and was all right in front of the camera. And I just wasn't really bothered about the camera. Um, and so, yeah, they taught me how to do in-ear and how to do all these things. And I just, and I remember telling a few of my dance friends and they were like, Oh my God, like, what is that? And I was like, well, you know, let's see. And if it's fun. And I was just like, it's, it's a bit of work and I'm, I get to explore a different country. Why not? I think I've always had a bit of an open mind. And so it was really good and I really enjoyed it. And instead of doing three months, I did a year. And then I left and I came to London and I was like, okay, well, I'll, um, 
I'll go back to auditioning for dance and maybe I'll do a bit of acting. Maybe if presenting comes up, I'll do a bit of that. And then went for a job um, for Eurosport and they had said they needed a French speaking person and English. And I speak both those. So I went and it was a little bit more acting than presenting, even though they wanted a presenter, but it was for the WWE. So they sort of said, we want a character presenter. And I was like, okay. And it was for kids and it was supposed to be fun. And I didn't know anything about WWE. So I sort of did lots of research and then went into it and it was really fun and nice. And then got that job and my friends were like, you know, not all, some were really supportive, but some were like, oh, oh she's doing that. Um, and I sort of fell into presenting. And it was and it was great, and I was getting sort of job after job. And then there was a year, you know, maybe three or four years in, where I got no work for like a whole year. And it was the first year I'd gone freelance. Um, before that, I was working for one specific, like I had a contract, and it was two years. And then after that, I had another contract, and it was a year. And then um, it was around the World Cup. I was like, oh, well, I'd like to work, you know, on site. And so the channel said, oh, well, we're not going on site. And I really wanted to go. So they said, okay, well, you know, you can go, but you have to go freelance. So I went freelance. Um, and freelance was just so scary. Because you don't have security. You've got to pay bills. Um, and you essentially have to be able to be like, hi, give me a job. And I find it really difficult. You know, I've got this imposter syndrome. I find it really difficult to name my attributes. I find it really difficult to network. Um, I, find it, I, I, I find it really easy to be sociable and to talk to people. I love that, I'm very good at that. But I find it really difficult to be sociable for an outcome. And that's what I thought in my mind networking was. Actually, networking can just be, be sociable with other people in your industry. You know, that's what it can be. It doesn't have to be like some sort of contrived exercise. <laughs> I've thought that before in the past. Yeah, I thought, oh, networking, I go there for an outcome. But networking could be what me and you did when we were on a job together. We just chatted, we hung out, we had lunch, we, you know, we did a job together, we were nice, we were cool. So when you then get in touch with me and go, Kaz, do you want to be on this podcast? I'll go, yeah, all right. Like that's a form of networking, but it yeah, came it's probably more, more successful as well that yeah, way than, than because it was more organic and it was just us being ourselves and being nice. Whereas I think in my head I had a preconceived idea that networking was this, you know, it had a goal attached to it, or you had to get a job, or actually it's I don't think it necessarily has to be that. Um but I wasn't very good at selling myself. I didn't really know who I needed to do that to. Um or how, or why, um, and it was a really tough year mentally because I just had no money coming in, had no money coming in. Um, I was getting really upset about it. and I was getting upset about something, but it wasn't like this was my dream. And it's not that I didn't enjoy it and I didn't want to carry on doing it, but it wasn't this plan that I'd always had. But whether it is the plan or not, doesn't matter. The point is, you're not defined by one thing. And I think at the time, I let that one thing define me. 
and it would be the same, I guess, if you're single, right? Everything else might be fine in your life, but you're single. You might get really depressed about the fact that you're single, but whether you're single or not, doesn't really define you. Whether you have that job or not, it doesn't define you. But in that moment, it's really difficult for you to really understand that. And for me, it was just, you know, at first it was a week and then it was two and then it was a month and then it was six. And it's almost traumatizing because you're like, oh my God, I'm never gonna work again like and that is it you know and so it was really worrying um and so I I needed to occupy my mind um and my boyfriend at the time I remember who uh I think tried to be supportive but just didn't really understand the way my brain worked and doesn't really understand depression and so it would just be like well you know pull yourself together and I I couldn't and I couldn't and you know, and I'm, this isn't me blaming him. I think he was just, he didn't relate and he didn't understand. Um, and then what I did decide to do was I sort of looked at all of the things that I had done before. And I was a dancer and I was a qualified dancer. And at the time, my mum had also convinced me to qualify as a dance teacher while I was training. So I had that qualification, but I just never used it. Um, so my mum was like, you know, why don't you do a bit of that? Yeah, so I started my own little dance school and I just started focusing my mind on that. And I got excited about building that business. I got excited about something else, basically. So I started teaching kids and I started off with, I think, two students. And then I started leafleting. So I'd go to the local schools and I'd leaflet about school and I started getting a website. And I just got very much into business. And in, I think in my head, I just thought, you know, I'm never going to work again as a presenter. And now no one's calling me for this work. And it, it felt personal. And I think my saving grace was when I sort of said, whatever, I need to, I'll, I'll do something else. I needed money and I needed to figure it out. And I thought, what else have I got? I've got other stuff. I've done other stuff. I had other stuff before this. I'll have other stuff after it. So I started working on the studio. I was the everything. I was the receptionist. I was the teacher. I was the musician. I was the cleaner. I was everything. And it started growing. And then when it started growing, I would get the odd call from maybe a producer that I'd worked with or a cameraman that I'd worked with or someone. And they'd go, oh, Caroline, they, someone, so-and-so needs someone. Are you, where are you now? I was like, oh, I'm freelance. And then it was as if I'd gone back to the beginning. When I got that first gig, I was like, oh, great well, this is a bonus. And then I slowly got another one and then another one. And then it was like, kind of not, not as regular as it had been, but it was getting there. And I was sort of juggling the two and that was okay. Um, and then I got nothing again for a while. And having the second meant that when I got nothing, I didn't fall into a pit of depression. I sort of had something else to focus on. I had something else that I was equally excited about and that I was doing and that started growing. And it was like, okay. And then and in the same breath, when, when the school was maybe going through a, a bit of a tough time, my presenting wasn't. And then it got to a point where um, just before COVID, I was sort of, the school was going really well. My presenting was going really well. And then COVID just was like, and just pulled the carpet from underneath me. The traumatic feeling of what I felt when I had no work for a year 
made me it all kind of came back around covid but it would be up and down so one day i'd be like oh god i'm never gonna work again and the two businesses that i have is now like over and then the next day i'd be like it's fine it's fine even now when i get sad i have to i have to kind of go back and go okay you had a year of no work you built two things there's a global pandemic it's not a personal thing towards you it's just what's happened my brain goes it's personal it's you everyone else is working and when you go on instagram even now during covid like you go on instagram and it just looks like everyone's working everyone's doing yeah it just highlights how much of a how, how much of a construction it is I had a post-it note stuck on my external monitor that just said, you're doing this for the world and for the sake of humanity. Just to stop myself getting so wrapped up in my own problems, that helped me to just contextualize the situation. I actually took it off the other day because I was like, I don't need this anymore. But at that time where I was like lost, you know, I needed that and I learned to do things like that. The moments at the where, where I've had no work, I think the COVID thing was so new in terms of that gap in work and everyone was experiencing it, that definitely for me, it harked back to round one of, of um, not having work. But like round one of not having work, I sort of panicked. And in my panic, I decided to leave London. My business is like crumbling. I'm, I work on set, you know. It's like in order for me to save my savings and, and save my business, I have, to, I have to leave London like ASAP. Uh, I just upped and left, made the decision in a week, took everything. Um, and and uh, I'm now here. I clearly was not of sound mind doing that because it was just insanity. To think about doing that right now kind of concerns me. So I clearly wasn't thinking straight. Now, going back to the question, it's like I'm, I'm really working on diversifying myself and it not being a negative thing, but I'm doing other things besides DP and you know? I have to have like a one track mind on one, one thing because it's good to have other interests and other kind of income streams too. Yeah. And everyone who's successful does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's doing something like this. This is something I've wanted to do for a while. And you know, I always feel like if I'm doing something good that makes me feel good, it will lead on to better, better things. How important is mental health awareness as you progress through your career and being aware of your own mental health as like a concept? So first of all, I think mental health is really important. And I think it's coming into kind of light now. But I think even now when it's coming into light, I think there are certain mental health issues that are more acceptable than others. I think if anyone talks about anxiety, people are very much willing to accommodate them and they're like oh my god if someone says I'm feeling anxious or I'm having a panic attack people feel more empathetic than they used to and they sympathize better whereas if you say I'm schizophrenic I think there's a huge stigma around that there's a lot of mental health in my family um my auntie's manic depressive my other auntie is schizophrenic and I I, I feel like I mean, maybe I, I mean, I must suffer with anxiety sometimes, but it's not something that's a bit of a default for me. I think my brain would go more towards the depressed side. I would spiral. I get really negative 
around myself. I, I have imposter syndrome, like a hundred percent. And it was funny because I was talking to a producer today and she was saying, you have imposter syndrome. You have, you know, you, you need to understand you're really good at what you do. And that's why we want you. You're not an imposter, but I, I do have a bit of an imposter syndrome. I feel like I'm a fraud in any minute now. Someone's going to go, oh, she's been tricking us. And actually, you know, it's, it's been a long time that I've been doing it. So, but I still have those feelings before I felt like it was a really taboo subject. Um, you know, my, I would never talk about my family mental health from a young age. My mum was like, no one needs to know that you don't talk about that. Whereas even now I'm older and I'm accepting of it. And I'll say to someone, well, you know, my, my auntie's schizophrenic and you know, people do just go, Oh, you know, they naturally go, Oh, or people don't even realize that they're doing it. Um, but we're all here learning. And I think it's only through maybe people saying, Oh, well, you know, if someone says something about schizophrenia or someone says something about depression or someone said something about suicide, if you then go, well, it is difficult because I've been depressed. It makes that other person go, oh, okay. We never know. They might be experiencing something, but they want to cover it up because they feel embarrassed about it. When I was experiencing, I guess, symptoms of that, I was quite young and no one, I hadn't heard of anyone else experiencing symptoms of that no one at school was and if they were they weren't talking about it now that I'm an adult and I sort of look back I think oh yeah I've seen where you know so-and-so's mum was probably depressed she'd have to go up for naps she couldn't always be around she was constantly tired she was upset like it was quite clear now as an adult but when you're younger, when you're a teenager, people don't always talk about it. I mean, I definitely think there's more conversation now than when I was younger, but there wasn't, I, I didn't really hear it very much. So when I did start hearing about it and people did start saying, I feel the same, I guess for me, I felt included. I felt like I wasn't this alien. It wasn't unique because in that uniqueness, it makes me feel like I'm, separate i'm i'm different i'm weird i'm odd and then the negative comes in and then i just would go down the spiral of i don't long weird i'm odd why do i feel like this why does it happen to me sometimes sometimes i'm fine sometimes i'm not and and then it just it's this circle and a cycle and yeah so i i guess for me personally i found a bit of comfort and solace knowing that other people um felt the same people often don't even ask for help because they're embarrassed. And we see lots of people saying, if you're upset, you know, ask for help. Um, but it's a different, I guess it can't, it will resonate differently with other people. Instead of saying, if you're going through anything, ask for help by saying, or if you were to say, you should ask for help in the same way I did when I went through this, I did this and it helped me I hope it helps you the more we share about our experiences the the better and the the more open and honest the kind of path is in every industry not just in this industry and it makes people be okay to kind of say whatever they're going through
on my social media, I don't want to really be at the front of it. And if I am, I'm, I've always tended to like hide myself somehow. Um, and, and I think that's kind of rolled out personally from like um, many reasons I won't actually know. But I think one of them is probably like at school, I got like a lot of stick for being skinny. And um, although that's generally, you know, in the media and whatever, it's all, you'd think people have generally perceived that as like some sort of a positive thing. And I think that's fed into like generally my views of myself and how other people see me. And as a result, the idea of putting myself on a cam on camera is like throwing that that out for that to come back at me again. You know, that's something that really stuck with me throughout my life, and it's something that people have constantly. I have it up to this day. Like people always go on about it, and I wonder how much that like subconsciously informs my decision making processes. So like what I want to do in terms of putting myself out there in the in in, in work and and uh, online, etc. You know. I mean, it's funny that you said that because I also was like really bullied for being skinny. Um, people always go, oh no, we mustn't fat shame. But people aren't aware that there's a lot of skinny shaming. People have fat shamed for a lot longer and, they've, and it's been super detrimental. And being skinny was almost, especially when I was growing up, it was, it was what you wanted to be. But it was almost this unrealistic expectation, at least for, for, for women or girls. It was like you had to be stick thin but have massive boobs. And it was just like none of it was, none of it was real. You know, you, it's, I'm sure there are people who naturally do have that, but it's not attainable and it was just weird. And I grew up with magazines highlighting celebrities where they had like spots or they had like the fat bits rolling out. So I, I can totally see that fat shaming was um, more prominent um, but there was also a lot of skinny shaming I remember Kira Knightley when she did an interview and she just said I'm just naturally skinny and people like hounded her for it and they constantly said she was anorexic or she was bulimic or she had this and people used to say it to me um, and I didn't and I haven't you know for all the issues that I have food isn't one of them for me and my mum's Brazilian, my, fam my entire family's Brazilian. And so in Brazilian culture, it's not even about being skinny. It's about being really womanly and shapely, um, which funnily enough now is really in fashion in the Western world. And everyone wants that kind of peachy booty and everyone wants curves. Um, but your body might not be naturally curvy or your body, you know, you, for you to get that work, that muscle, you've got to like put in serious hours in the gym whereas other people it's just natural when they've got it and it's we're just in this society where skinny was the 90s and then boobs was like the noughties and now it's the ass and and it's just if you're trying to contort your body to all of that it's going to give you major issues and I've just always been skinny I just have and I've, I was given so much stick at school so much stick and I mean I was like getting socks and stuff and trying to stuff my bra when I was going to school because it just you know I, I was tiny I just was um and it and it did affect me it did affect me even even now I guess I, there's always a little voice of what people said when I was younger on the whole I have I have a good relationship with my body but I do you know in my stand-up set I, I take the piss out of the fact that I'm I'm really skinny and I'm surrounded by Brazilians who are constantly going, oh, like, you know, I'd go on holiday and my aunties would be like, oh, she's sick. Oh, no, she's sick. 
it was like constantly trying to feed me on them. Like, she has to eat, she lost so much weight. It's like, I'm just, no, like, I'm just skinny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've had that my whole life. That like you need to, the, you need to eat things. Taking the mick out myself was the the best way to sort of deal with that when I was a kid. You know, ridiculing myself is part of my humor, and you kind of like snap that before someone else does in a way. But yeah, it's funny. Like as a guy, I have to fight the sort of pressure about like being macho. For me to be that like big bulky like bloke, first of all, the amount of food I would have to eat would be insane. I'd probably make myself sick with it. And I, I like work out and exercise, but I try and like lean into the into the sort of exercise that's better for my sort of body shape as opposed to trying to do something like unrealistic. Because I think if I was to try and get like that big bulky physique, I'd have to dedicate my entire life to it and then that would probably become unhealthy. It's like I've got little freckles and I hated them growing up and now there's a whole freckle trend and people buy makeup. Yeah, you can get like a filter on Instagram, can't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's just, it's just constantly changing. You know, I had straight hair growing up and then I cut my hair and it went really coil curly. And then I was, you know, my, one of my first jobs um, as a sales assistant, I was working in Harrods and like spritzing perfume. And it was just my weekend job. And one of the I came in once and I had that kind of Carrie Bradshaw um, curly hair because my mum's, yeah, my mum's Brazilian, so I've inherited it. And I remember him being like, oh my God, you look like a poodle. And I probably did look like a bit of a poodle, but I loved it. And he was just like, oh my God, tomorrow you straighten. And I was like, oh, I don't have straighteners. And he was like, you buy a pair of straighteners, you need to look glamorous. This is not glamorous. And I just got a bit of a complex about my curls. I've always blow dried my hair straight since. I'm interested in um, in finding out the impact of travel on your life and if it's ever affected your personal life in any way. Yeah, I think I do travel a lot. Sometimes I travel way more than other times. Um, in the past, it has been an issue. Yeah, it's been an issue. It's difficult with friendships just because when people need to do stuff, you're not there, you're not available. Um, and then I think when I am home, sometimes I want to just be at home. And it's quite difficult because I wear myself thin in that I, I sort of say, well, I haven't seen these people in so long, so I'm going to go and see so-and-so, and I'm going to go and do this, and I'm going to go and do that, and I'm going to do this. And actually, I just need to kind of centre and be at home. Um, and I don't always do that. And then I feel really frustrated or I feel like guilted into going to something that actually I probably just shouldn't go to because I'm just knackered and I've been I've been traveling a lot and my work schedule's shattering and then personal life if you've got a partner in the past it's been an issue I've had partners who do nine to five jobs um where they don't really get to travel very much and I think each situation is different but I think one partner for sure was not happy in his career and his job and I think saw mine even though he knew how it's not glamorous it looks glamorous but it's not glamorous um I think he still envied the fact that it felt like I was jetting off somewhere you know it felt I think it's harder for the one that stays if you're the one that's leaving constantly and so 
it, it became it became definitely a bit of a, a sore spot and a point of friction. So yeah, I think there are sacrifices to be made, but I do love travel. Um, so yeah, especially when I was younger, I loved it. It was just like great. This is brilliant. I think it was easier when I was single because um, yeah, I didn't feel guilty that I was leaving anyone that I was not that you should I think that's another thing to say I think you shouldn't feel guilty that you've got a really good perk to your job and you shouldn't feel guilty that it's something that you like but every everything has pros and cons with covid I was uh, loads of my work got cancelled and I had to stay at home like I mean I mean I've slept on my bed for the past three years I think and it was only with COVID that I went, this is a really uncomfortable mattress. <laughs> like, I don't think I really <laughs> properly noticed before. And it was only like a month in that I'm like, I think I need to change my mattress. This is really uncomfortable. How do you deal with, with the hours? Do you ever find that you're like getting a lack of sleep with all the traveling and, and whether that has like an impact on how you're feeling and your mood and like your mental health in general? I get cranky if I haven't slept and I get really badly hangry. So I sort of am like a baby. I just need to be napped and fed and then I'm, and I'm happy. Yeah, lack of sleep really affects my mood and worrying about it if it's a new job. And it's not even that they've not given me the time to sleep. I just sometimes worry because of this imposter syndrome. So sometimes I'm up worrying and then I find myself going, if I go to sleep now, I'll have 10 hours. If I go to sleep now, I'll have nine hours. If I go to sleep now, I'll have eight. And then suddenly I'm like, go to sleep now and you'll have one whole hour. Um, so when... Yeah, when I've not eaten, it just, it alters my mood. It genuinely alters my mood and I need to be aware of it, especially in a professional situation. I think people close to me um, sort of know. Sometimes they'll go, are you hungry? <laughs> and I know that I've probably <laughs> been a bit short. Now I think on a job, I need to preempt that I might be hungry later and sometimes carry snacks with me if I've remembered and I'm organised. I get so irritable when I don't, when I don't have anything to eat or lunch just goes over. And I'm the same, like, I wish I could be more organized and always have snacks. I'd say probably about one in 10 days at work, I've actually got all the snacks and the things to make sure that doesn't happen. I can't always rely on people feeding me like I'm a cow in a farm. I need to make sure that I can also take some responsibility for that myself, because that's the thing, like lunch can just, I'll just delay lunch by two hours. And I'm like, well, you've just lost five hours from me there because I'm starving and kind of moody. <laughs> and it's like, I have to, try and smile and be happy about it. I actually got sick. There was one job where um, my producer, he was great, but he had something really rare. He had really long intestines. I mean, I know that your intestines are already really long, but his were extra long, which meant that he couldn't have a normal meal because it would really give him digestion problems. So he sort of grazed throughout the day. He would have like little bits he'd eat here and there. Um, and so we would often skip lunch and he was new. And I just, I think, yeah, I had a bit of this 
nervousness about going, sorry, can we stop for lunch or are we going to eat at some point? I just didn't feel confident enough to say that, even though I'm obviously within my right to say that, I just didn't feel confident. So I would let it go on. And I was just working nonstop hours. We were skipping lunch and I just wasn't getting enough sleep. But I was so grateful to be on the job. And I had this, so much of this imposter syndrome that I was just really like, oh, I need, to, I need to just buckle down and get on with it. And everyone else seemed to be getting on with it, but everyone wasn't on my rota. And then we were live. And I, I mean, I'm laughing about it now, but it wasn't funny. We were live and I threw to a piece. So we went off, luckily, but I was feeling a little bit like off. And they said, are you okay? And I just fainted. I full on fainted and then they sort of picked me up and they're like oh my god we need to finish the show are you okay and I was like yeah and I was so shaken by what happened I just had a bit of water I think they might have even given me like a fizzy drink which I hardly ever drink and I had a fizzy drink I was like okay I had a bit of sugar and I just it was near the end and I closed the show and I was just not well and I had to go to a hospital it, again going back to the skinny thing the doctor was just like all oh, her levels are really low. Have you not been eating? And they looked at me and they were like, do you have an eating disorder? And I was like, no, we haven't had lunch for like five days. Like I'm, I'm skipping meals here on a regular basis and I'm not sleeping. And the doctor was just like, she needs, she needs a full recharge. She needs to eat, she needs to sleep. Um, yeah, and I remember afterwards they were like, oh, you should have told us, you should have said something. Um, and it's true, I should have, you know, ultimately I should have just gone, guys, we're skipping a lot of lunches here, or, you know. I hated working with people who didn't need to eat. I just hated it. That's just like a basic human right. If you can't give me the time to stop so I can go and make or source my own food, it needs to be brought and I need some time to eat it if you expect me to do a good job. When I shot this feature film I did a few years ago, I had to have not just three meals a day, but two protein shakes just to maintain the energy I needed to shoot a handheld film for seven weeks in a row. I still got ill halfway through it. I got food poisoning halfway through it, ironically, which was horrific. If I didn't have the protein shakes, I couldn't maintain the energy levels that were required. You know, I don't think I've ever been as hench as after that job because I just did seven weeks of two protein shakes a day and constant lifting. I was just like, whoa, like, and then it just all went. And there we have it. Thanks again to Caroline for being so generous with her stories and her experiences. You can check out her work via her Instagram, which is in the show notes, but you'll also probably see her on TV at some point too. If you liked today's episode, then don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. The usual, just search for Vision and Graft in your podcast app and click subscribe at the top of the screen. I'm actually saying this separately each week. I'm not constantly repeating the same bit of audio just to let you all know. Um, please leave me an Apple podcast review if you get a minute to. It takes no time at all and it's helping me to grow. So I'll be massively appreciative if you can. You can get in touch and follow me at Vision Graft on Instagram and Twitter. I've been sharing my thoughts throughout the week on topics we raise in the podcast. So there's extra content there if you're interested. You'll find show notes and all other past episodes at visiongraft.com. If you think that Vision and Graft could be useful to your friends or family, then why don't you share it with them? You can send over a link to the website or the Instagram 
or just let them know they can easily find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I know with COVID restrictions lifting, everything can or has already started to feel a bit overwhelming and the pace of life seems to have increased tenfold. I'm making sure that I still give myself that time every day to appreciate the moment, reflect on how I feel and ensure that I'm the one in the driving seat doing what is best for me to achieve my goals and benefit those around me and my community. Thank you for listening to Vision and Graft, a creative's career and mental well-being companion. If talking's the cure, then creativity's the recovery. Take care. Find us online at visiongraft.com or on Instagram and Twitter at visiongraft.